Hi there, I'm Priya Tachudi and you're listening to Talk Impact, a show that brings you inspiring stories, hard-earned insights and tips from leaders who are on the front lines of social change in Asia. Welcome back to Talk Impact. I am so excited for you to meet and hear from our guest today on this very special episode. You know those moments, those rare moments in life when you get to meet your role model, your idol? Well, that's what happened to me. I got a chance to sit down with none other than Natalie Molina Nino. Natalie is a serial entrepreneur, investor, gender advocate, and author. Her book, Leapfrog, The New Revolution for Women Entrepreneurs, changed my life and thousands of women around the world. Natalie's own story is incredibly inspiring. A daughter of immigrants, she became an entrepreneur out of necessity and then went on to build and sell companies, lead corporate teams and became an investor. And she's been trailblazing the investing world and leading the way to create alternate pools of capital for women and diverse founders. She's brave and bold and has never shied away from calling out privilege in the startup ecosystem. Natalie joined us as a keynote speaker at the launch event of the We Rise Community, an access to finance platform from Wilgro Philippines and UN Women, where women entrepreneurs can connect with funders, investors, and other entrepreneur support organizations. A much-needed initiative to break down the barriers that women entrepreneurs face. In this conversation, we touched on many of these important issues that women entrepreneurs are facing today. So let's dive straight in and listen to what she had to say. Natalie, thank you so much for being here and joining us today. We are beyond thrilled to have you with us. I am so excited, both of the idea that there are, you know, people still reading the book and that it's being helpful, um, but I'm also just excited to be able to, you know, talk and interact with people in the region. This is exciting work. We need women to be thriving entrepreneurs. So, so first, let me just say thank you for inviting me. Uh, but also, Priya, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, you, when we kicked off our accelerator and, you know, it was in the pandemic and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were like, okay, we got to still send people a goodie bag, right? We've, we've selected mm. 20 women entrepreneurs. And the first thing that my team and I uh, thought of is that we have to get LeapFrog into that bag. Oh. <laughs> and, but, you know, we only managed to get 11 out of 20 copies and then figuring out how to get the rest of them digital copies. But it was in that bag. And the reason that we kind of, you know, felt every woman entrepreneur should read it because we truly believe that, you know, it is, um, it is a bold book. It's the book or, you know, it's the advice that women entrepreneurs have been waiting to hear, but, you know, you only hear in like little bits, but I'm also kind of, when I was reading it, the thing that struck me was that you took a fairly bold approach uh, to telling Mm. the story or, you know, even sharing those hacks the way you did, because you really called out privilege um, that Mm. exists very predominantly in the startup ecosystem but in all aspects of life really so what really made you kind of decide that okay this is this is what I'm going to write about I mean some of it maybe is age (laughs) you know (laughs) you you not I mean not because I think that necessarily gives me any sort of newer special wisdom perhaps it does but it was more like um 
you know, I think 25 year old Natalie was probably seeing these things also, but maybe just not feeling brave enough, or maybe it's not even bravery. Maybe it was just the consequences when you're earlier in your career are higher, right? There are people who could take offense to what you say. They could impact your career trajectory. They could not invest in you. You know, if you're in a, in a job, they could not promote you. Um, so, you know, it's also perhaps the, the privilege of independence and, and age and, and, you know, the ability to say the things that some people um, think and see as well, but maybe they're not in a position to say it. And then the sense of responsibility, right? And I have to say some of it was fatigue. And I think you, you said this, Priya, that um, you get these information like this in bits and pieces. And I really experienced that. So my entire career, and I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs are like this, right? Every book about entrepreneurship, I tried to get my hands on and read. And I had become very accustomed to the idea that I read an entire book and I'm excited and I am, I am feeling like I won if 10% of the book was relevant to me, right? Like that just became the norm. And I was used to opening books reading magazines and seeing that 90% of the content just didn't apply to me, right? They were telling me to raise, you know, half a million US dollars from my friends and family. And I was like, my friends, my family are immigrants. My grandmother moved to this country in the United States, right? And worked in the sweatshops in the factories of downtown Los Angeles. Like who's gonna give me, give me, right? Half a million dollars. Um, and know that it's also high risk, right? Because entrepreneurship ventures are high risk. There's no guarantee that they're going to make their money back or they're going to make a profit. Who has that kind of money when you come uh, from families that you know don't come from wealth? And so that's a perfect example. There was another one that I remember I would see all the time, which is this idea in startups that comes up all the time, which is fail fast, right? Hurry up and fail fast. Just like go guns blazing, spend a bunch of money, hire a bunch of people like, okay, you're going to make mistakes, but at least make them fast. And then look, if you crash and burn, you can just start a second company and a third company and on and on. And I'm thinking who has the resilience and more importantly, who has the economic safety net to be able to make expensive mistakes like that? And then just bounce back and start another company. And then if that one fails, start another one. I mean, it was very clear to me that 90% of the content that was out there was for someone else. And um, I think that what happened that is that in my life, I was just assuming that, well, I'm an anomaly. I'm, I'm a strange one. You know, I must be the exception to the rule. And what happened was when I joined um, the Athena Center, which is a leadership center um, at Barnard College, which is the women's college connected to Columbia University in New York City, I was suddenly exposed to mountains and mountains of research and studies and data. And it was wild because when I looked at the data, I actually saw we're the majority. Like the majority of entrepreneurs, A, are women. And just like the majority of the world, 70% of the world are not white men. You know, we are the majority, no matter how you look at it. We are the ones that are the majority of the ones starting businesses. We do not have access to wealthy family members. We do not have access to, you know, all the sort of funding that often privileged people have. And so that was, I think, Priya, the, the, the sort of epiphany for me that I went from thinking that I was the strange one yeah. to suddenly realizing I actually represent the majority of entrepreneurs, not just in the United States, but in the world. And that's when it really, really hit me that now it's really not okay. 
that the majority of the content and the books and the magazines are not speaking to us. And so, you know, that was it. That was the moment where I was like, okay, well, somebody needs to write a book for the majority of entrepreneurs who happen to be women, who happen to be women of color. And after I sat on that for almost a year, um, frankly, it hit me. I'm like, well, I'm somebody. So yeah, somebody needs to write this book. I guess it's going to be me. And hopefully I can encourage others uh, to write their versions of their books and we can have a whole library of books for us. <laughs> that, yeah, I, I, I found it so empowering because finally I had language, right? I, I could mm -hmm. express a lot of the things that, you know, that you probably saw as you kind of made your journey. I was seeing this, but in pockets, but I really couldn't, I, I didn't have, you know, like a thesis around it to express um, you know, how to support women entrepreneurs, how the needs are different, because you are kind of, once you get into this uh, whole startup space, you're, you're kind of, you know, really just bombarded with information of high growth, you know, mm -hmm. hockey stick and one path. Uh, yeah. One way, <laughs> one way. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, how do you find your next, you know, venture capital investors? What do they look for? And then you start judging as a person who's selecting entrepreneurs and you are starting to judge entrepreneurs only in that linear way as well, or this one mm -hmm. is never going to get a follow-on funding. Um, so one of the interesting things that I really loved about um, what you were talking about is something that, you know, I've now started articulating more confidently and is mm -hmm. the fact that vast majority of businesses don't need venture capital and venture capital is not a fit. And as you say, sometimes a terrible, in most times a terrible fit. Um, yep. So how should women entrepreneurs who are kind of starting out on this journey and their businesses come in all sizes, they have different growth ambitions, how should mm -hmm. women entrepreneurs, you know, really approach raising capital or should they be raising capital? Yeah, I mean, in many cases, they might not. You know, but I understand that capital is always helpful, right? But I think the thing to always consider um, is what's the true, true price of the capital, right? There's no such thing as free capital, right? Um, and so when it comes to actual investment capital, where people are taking equity in your company, that is the single most expensive kind of capital, which is why I often see it as either not a fit at all, never going to be a fit, or it's the sort of option of last resort. Like you should be giving away ownership in your company as a last resort. Like, of course, you know, if somebody is willing to give you a loan, for example, you know, um, in exchange for no equity in your company, so you're giving up no ownership, you know, but you do have to pay some interest. And I know that, you know, this is something that especially for, you know, communities that do not have a lot of wealth, we are not raised being very friendly with the idea of debt, right? debt, oof, it's just, it's a scary word. You know, it's something that you want to get out of. But the truth is, if you look at every successful entrepreneur in the world, you might not see the article in the magazine that says that they got, you know, a $3 million loan in order to scale their company, but they did, right? I mean, in many cases, what you have to have is what we often in investing call a balanced capital stack. So you have maybe some equity investing, you have some debt, um, you have a line of credit if you're the sort of company that has inventory and has to store things in warehouses. Well, a line of credit is a beautiful form of capital because it's this fund that you deplete, you pay back, and then it's there again. And you can deplete it again and pay it back. And every time you go in and out of using it and then paying it back, you don't have to apply for a new loan. It's just this fund that's available for you to use and pay back and then use and pay back, right? So I think what it comes down to is education, like make it your job to understand all the different forms of financing that are out there 
And for me, I think it's important to understand that 0.05% of business financing is venture capital. There's a reason that it's a teeny tiny niche. Now, you would think that it was 99% of all financing because they take up 99% of the oxygen and they are doing 99% of the articles and 99% of the business magazines, right? And on TV, like you would think that the only form of financing was venture capital. And that's partly because venture capitalists love to get attention and show everybody what they're doing because it helps their businesses and it helps the companies that they invest in. And that's fine. I have some issues with the idea that they make it seem like they're the only show in town. And that's part of why I'm so vocal about explaining to people that there are these other things. And it's not just debt, right? There's a form of equity um, capital that does involve people taking a piece of your company, but smaller amounts, you know, and, and amounts that are perhaps in many cases more valuable um, in the form of crowdfunding, right? And crowdfunding can be, I'm going to pre-sell, you know, um, units of the product that I'm launching in advance in exchange for money, right? And they're not taking any percentage of my, of my company. But crowdfunding can also be debt. Crowdfunding can also be equity, right? There are all these different forms of crowdfunding. And what I love about crowdfunding is two things. Women are disproportionately more successful at crowdfunding. It's the only category of financing where we're better than anyone else. Um, and we're receiving more capital than anyone else. And so I kind of figured, look, this is, this is a natural place for us. The second reason I love it is because if you care about marketing and if your business benefits from marketing, what better way of marketing your product or your service or your company than starting off having 500 people, 1,000 people, however many people feel like they're part owners of your company, right? Like they are committed and they have skin in the game and your success is their success. Like that is the best form of marketing. Not only are you getting capital, but you're getting your first 500 fans or your first 1000 fans, right? And that's the most important thing for a lot of companies. So I guess, you know, the short answer is do the work of exploring the different forms of financing and make sure that you understand the true cost of that financing and giving up a portion of your company to anyone for any reason is very expensive and should be done with a lot of caution. Yeah, I, I love I love the idea of, you know, crowdfunding and that's kind of, very interestingly taking off uh, in mm -hmm. the Philippines and, you know, in Good. Southeast Asia broadly. Uh, of course, still very early days because regulation and all of that needs to catch mm -hmm. up. Uh, but, you know, that's a great point that you make of, you know, using all of the other forms until you get to equity, right? And I think uh, we've kind of been conditioned and exposed to it in a different way to think that, okay, like, first thing is to find equity investors who'll be with you kind of a long term. So I think that's great advice. I want to kind of just... Um, zoom in on the, what you spoke about debt, because mm -hmm. this is one thing that I have noticed. And, uh, you know, when we launched our accelerator program, we said, you know, we'll really focus on working capital um, and really preparing women entrepreneurs to access that. And, but even right at the application form, when we started asking people, you know, women entrepreneurs, like, do they need loans? Uh, mm -hmm. And we started having those conversations, there's a lot of fear. Um, mm -hmm. And they're like, no, no, like, I really don't want a loan. Or if I've taken a loan, I'm trying my best to pay it back as fast as possible. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I really don't want to owe anybody. Some of it is cultural, because they're, you know, in like Asian culture, you don't want to be in debt uh, to family members or friends who might be who you borrowed from. Um, yeah. But, you know, you've kind of really spoken actively about... Uh, really kind of leveraging that instrument, right? Leveraging the forms of yeah. loan. Um, so 
what would you say to women entrepreneurs who are who really need it but are really afraid mm -hmm. of debt look the first thing that i would say is that your resident your reticence right or your caution around debt is not unjustified because and i think this is important right because it's very easy to just say well that's silly here embrace this concept it's like no 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 it's actually not silly you are justified in being cautious about debt because many of us and not just our generation but our parents generations and our grandparents generation and listen <laughs> those of us that come from countries that are colonies or were once colonies it goes back hundreds of years we know that debt has been used in a predatory way bad debt has taken generations of people and oppressed them right so there is no question that we are justified in being cautious about debt but that's because we've been exposed to predatory debt and i think the interesting thing to sort of explore is this idea that no matter how wealthy the person is they're leveraging debt so if the extremely wealthy are using debt every single day right even if they could easily afford you know millions and millions of say us dollars to go and buy a house they choose instead to leverage debt so that with that same amount of money they can buy 10 right it's simply a mechanism for growth and if it's used properly and if you are discerning and you are making sure to accept debt that is not predatory with terms that are acceptable and terms that are actually helpful um these good forms of debt they exist they absolutely exist and so i think what's interesting for us collectively to learn is that there's good debt and there's bad debt and most of us have been exposed to a lot of bad debt so now is the time to explore that good debt right that debt that is engineered to support us in growing our companies that does not require us to pay it back really quickly or have predatory interest rates that end up drowning you um like i said things like lines of credit things like small business loans um things like um sometimes public banks right there's a privately held banks and then there's publicly held banks or there's debt vehicles that exist inside of a foundation or a charitable organization that has decided to deploy kind of debt that is helpful right um uh, because what's interesting with debt is that it can also be helpful to the community right i need some money i'm going to use it and when i pay it back that profit gets recycled into my community into a loan for my colleague who has a business down the street from me right there is something positive potentially about recycling debt in a community and so that's my biggest thing is you are justified in being scared of bad debt because bad debt is truly bad <laughs> but it's time to kind of open up our horizons and realize great we know that there's bad debt and there's good debt let's go find and more importantly let's demand that we be, be given good debt let's be on a first name basis with the bankers that provide debt and when they offer us something that doesn't make sense let's push back and let's say i don't like your product can you give me something better i'm a small business i require something that gives me more time that gives me lower interest right remember that you can negotiate with bankers these debt instruments and these terms are negotiable they are there is not a place where they're not negotiable so i think that's it it's taking the reins and taking the power and realizing that just like everything else it can be made to be helpful and it can be made to do damage yeah i think that's a great point it is we have to kind of look at it in the lens of everything kind of has those two sides or multiple mm -hmm. sides sometimes but yeah. interesting that you know you kind of spoke about debt for growth and i want to kind of focus a little bit and get your insights on growth because one of the biggest perceptions 
uh, for women entrepreneurs, women-led businesses is that they're small um, mm-hmm. and they don't fit, you know, the growth story that, um, you know, different types of fund, you know, investors, financial institutions look for. Um, and a perception that maybe it's not ambitious enough or aggressive enough and it'll stay small. Um, so how do we break those barriers? Because I think one of the things that beautifully you explained in your book and what you've been vocal about is that women-led businesses, women entrepreneurs, you know, all sizes, all different growth parts, different, you know, success on, t- on your own terms. So yeah. how do we really break this barrier down? I mean, part of that is to, is to reframe too and think about how the majority of male owned businesses are small. And yet there isn't this perception Mm. that, well, you're a man, you're probably gonna have a small business. And the reason that the majority of male owned businesses are small is because the majority of businesses are small, period, right? Like that's just the fact. Um, And so the fact that somebody has attached that sort of perception to women, I think is just silly and it's not data driven. Um, But what is true, What is true is that women have a harder time getting access to the things that allow them to grow. For example, in the United States, women get something like 4% of loans, women own small businesses, right? Um, It's ridiculous. And so of course, of course you're not gonna grow. Of course you're gonna get stuck at a small scale when the world around you is not giving you access to the tools that you need to grow. And so I think that's the first thing is to realize that, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, it's very clearly. Women entrepreneurs are incredibly entrepreneurial. Nobody needs to, in my opinion, teach women how to be bigger risk takers when we're the ones that are starting the majority of the businesses. Nobody needs to inspire women to think about being entrepreneurs when we're the ones, again, the majority of us are starting businesses. And we come from long legacies of starting businesses your our mothers our fathers our grandfathers even if they were small businesses there's so much entrepreneurial wisdom oftentimes within our you know within our own families and were their businesses small yes but are the same lessons applicable they are right and so even if you don't come from multiple generations of wealth i guarantee you that many of us come from multi-generations of entrepreneurs and so my sense is that what we have is a problem of access And that's why I want people to demand these better loan products. That's why I want people to go out and demand access to good crowdfunding platforms and these sorts of things, because all we're missing is the gasoline to go, right? The the vehicle is there, the creativity is there, the will is there. Um, And, you know, in a lot of countries, I can tell you in the United States, this is true, when the recession, the economic uh, recession happened in the United States in 2009, the majority of the people who were laid off from jobs were women and specifically they were women of color. And then everybody's kind of surprised that in the decade that follows, you know, women uh, continue to be the ones that start businesses at twice the rate of men. And in the US, 89% of those businesses are started by women of color. And people are surprised that this is the case. And it's like, well, if you were the majority of the ones that lost your job, then out of necessity, what are you gonna do? you're gonna be the majority of the ones starting the businesses, right? So I think that what we have is we have an underutilized, amazing resource, right? It's the group that is the most entrepreneurial that we are giving the least amount of funding to and the least amount of attention to, which is why Priya programs like yours, they're so important, right? Because this is not a community 
that needs to be inspired. This is a community to, to be an entrepreneur. This is a community that they've already decided yeah. and what they need is this gasoline, right? And so I think it's less a question of the women entrepreneurs needing anything. It's the people who are in positions of power with capital who need to get out of our way, right? Because they really are. When In the US, when 4% of small business owners who are women get business loans, the problem is the banks. The problem is not the women, right? Um, and so really that's where the problem lies. And I think that there are enough of us making enough noise and the more of us kind of join um, and ask questions, like ask the big banks, what percentage of your loans are going to women-owned small businesses? What percentage of your lines of credit? What percentage, if there's a crowdfunding campaign in the Philippines, what percentage of your crowdfunding campaigns are started by women entrepreneurs? We don't have a lack of women entrepreneurs. So if you don't have enough on your platform, then it may be, maybe you're not marketing to the right people, right? Maybe you're not making the structure appealing to women. And these are the sorts of, I guess, positions that I want us to take. We're already here and we need to be knocking and if possible, you know, knocking down the doors of the people that are getting in our way. Absolutely. And I think that's so true because I think right now in Southeast Asia and in the Philippines, uh, you know, working with women entrepreneurs is kind of almost like the buzzword, but I think, uh, and it's starting to change. So there are lots of products. Many times women entrepreneurs don't know about them because there's that information asymmetry, but I think things yeah. are changing, but I think the point that you made of, you know, is, is that even appropriate for the women entrepreneurs and their needs? I think that's where, you know, mm -hmm. we are continuing to see the gap and what we have really kind of zoomed in on because, you know, it can all be there. It can be listed. We can have a big brochure of, you know, we have all these products, women entrepreneurs, but they're not accessing it. That means there is, there is a mismatch between the needs mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and, and the products out there. And I think that's something that, you know, we are very actively working on. It's not easy, <laughs> but, you know, mm -hmm, we're, we're mm -hmm. kind of starting and making noise and trying to, um, you know, educate, not just you know, women entrepreneurs and what kind of capital, but also providers in, you know, what the needs are and where those gaps are coming and how to take a little bit more risk because, you know, here are women entrepreneurs risking quite a lot um, mm -hmm. in kind of building these businesses. I think that's something that, you know, I, I echo very strongly as well. Uh, and being question? welcoming, Priya, I think that's important, being welcoming and, yeah. and showing that like their path even if it feels like it's a little different than what they perceive to be the traditional path is okay, right? Um, I mentioned in my book, a dear friend of mine, uh, Nina Vaca. Nina Vaca is from Ecuador where my family, half of my family is from. She's an immigrant to the United States and her company today has over a billion dollars in revenues and she never took one penny of venture capital. She never went on Shark oh, no. Tank. She never did, and, right? She, everybody told her that this was the way. And she said, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way. I want to her to this day, even though the company has a billion in revenues and in the United States, it's the fastest growing woman-owned company in the country. She still has family members who are in senior executive positions. I believe that her brother is the president of the company. I believe that her husband is even now, he used to be on Wall Street, now he's with the company. Um, you know, this idea, you can't work with your family. If you're gonna grow and you wanna grow quickly, well, then you have to take venture capital. Across the board, all of the things that are supposed to be true, you look at Nina Vaca and her example, she did none of those things. She's the fastest growing woman-owned company. She has a billion dollars in revenues and now she's going international. It's just, us 
accepting that there are other ways of doing it, right? And that the way that women want to do business is acceptable. And if they don't want to quickly sell their company after three or four years, that's okay. You know, there are many of us that want to keep our companies forever because we want to help our families and our communities. I think that that's the main thing is like, ensure that if anybody is telling you that there's only one way to grow, that you understand that that's not true. Yeah, that's, that's really important because I think that's something that we see a lot in the Philippines and with a lot of the women entrepreneurs that we're working with, they have family members, right? Helping in, stepping in. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, sometimes we have all these questions of cleaning up the cap table and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. presenting it one way or the other. And I think it's very interesting to hear. And I think it's so interesting to hear that, hear these stories. And I think that's what was powerful for me about the book as well, is just knowing that there are people women out there who've done this and not taken this this path that maybe you know we're getting from the internet and all our Facebook feeds that this is really what we got to do so I think that, yeah. that's really powerful and hearing more of those stories I think is really important which brings me to your story um, you know <laughs> you started out as an entrepreneur quite young and you've kind of you know made your way multiple companies you know led uh, verticals and corporates and then you know becoming an investor um, and given kind of your, the, you know, your background that you were mentioning earlier, how did you, how did you get this drive? How did you make it here, Natalie? I mean, I think like a lot of people probably in your program, initially it started out of necessity, right? Um, I didn't come from a wealthy family at all. Um, college was difficult. The last thing that I was going to do is ask my parents for additional, well, they didn't have it, even if I did ask, right? ask for additional money to buy a car or anything like that. And so I had scratched my, you know, few pennies together. And my only form of transportation in college was a motorcycle. That was it. And by the way, I was in college in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains where it snows. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, this was the situation. I was riding a motorcycle in the snow. Um, but whatever it took, right? And what happened was I got into an accident um, back home um, where my family is from also in Colombia. Um, and when I came back to school in January after the, the holidays, I was, I had a, a busted knee and a busted wrist and I was not in a position to be able to ride a motorcycle anymore, but I didn't have the money to buy a car, right? And not only that, I needed a car with an automatic transition because I was not in a position to be, you know, moving a stick shift. Right. So it was like a specific need, right? So I went to this car dealership in the neighborhood. And of course I went to the one that looked the poorest, right? Like the little used car dealership. And this was in, this was in 1996, right? When at the time, the only car dealerships that had websites um, were the big, big ones, right? The, the expensive, fancy ones. And this little car dealership, you know, in the corner here um, obviously did not have a website. And I had taught myself, along with my friends in college, um, how to make websites, right? And this is what we were nerds. You know, we spent our spare time teaching ourselves how to make websites. Um, at the time, most websites were pretty basic and we were learning how to make websites with databases in the background where you could actually have inventory and like real transactions. And so we were starting to make robust websites. Um, the most complicated one we had made was for the cafeteria at the university where we were helping them manage their food, right? With a database and a front. I mean, this is primitive things, right? But for a car dealership that has no website, what I did is I went over and I found the car that I wanted. I saw how much it costs. I only had half the money in cash. And I went to the owner of the car dealership and I said, look, I only have half of what you're asking. For the other half, I propose that I make you a website. And the guy said, yes. 
to my surprise. <laughs> um, and so I made him a website and then fast forward now, I had a company that was making websites for all sorts of businesses. And then I had more work that I could handle. So then I brought in my boyfriend at the time and then my friends. And next thing you know, you know, we were all working in this company. But I say that and I tell that story because I come from entrepreneurial parents. Um, my father and my paternal side of my family, when they moved to this country, as I mentioned, they worked in the sweatshops in the factories of Los Angeles. Um, that's entrepreneurship, but I didn't know that was entrepreneurship, mm. right? I, so if you had asked me when I was 20 years old, like, do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? I would be like, no, you know, because in my mind, an entrepreneur was Bill Gates. An entrepreneur was, you know, um, it, this is pre him, but like now when I ask people that question, entrepreneur is Mark Zuckerberg, entrepreneur is right. These are the people that we think are entrepreneurs, not my parents who worked in the factories, right? But they were entrepreneurial. My dad had a job in the factory and then eventually he started his own factory. He was an entrepreneur, right? And so when I was 20, I didn't see it that way. I just saw it as, oh my gosh, I don't have enough money. How am I gonna buy this car? Let me use the skill that I didn't even think was a skill in order to survive, right? And so I love that people are inspired. I love that people think that I have like endless energy. And, and I do because the women entrepreneurs that I work with every day, they inspire me. But I don't want people to think that I just woke up 20 years old and was just like, boom, I'm an entrepreneur, right? I was surviving. And I think that a lot of us start that way. And that's, there's nothing wrong with starting at a place where you're just trying to survive. Once you pass that threshold of, okay, now I'm not just surviving. Now, now I can be ambitious. Now I can dream, right? That's where, and the progress and the sort of order that it, sometimes it comes in. Like you're not necessarily having big dreams in the beginning. If you do, wonderful. But if all you're doing is surviving like me, that's okay. Eventually you'll get to the place where like me, you can really start to dream and be ambitious and think of, you know, big ideas. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think that was really, I think it's wonderful for everybody to hear that. And uh, one of the things that, of course, you are doing now is, you know, investing and backing women entrepreneurs yourself um, and you know, that intersection of climate, gender. Um, but the simple fact is that there aren't many women entrepreneurs, I mean, women investors out there, female investors out there, decision makers. When we look mm -hmm. at structure, I mean, if, you know, we can look at funds, but we can also look at other financial institutions. We can look at boards. Mm -hmm. um, banks. Yeah, yeah. banks. How the investment committees for? for endowments, the investment oh, committees at foundations. Yeah, they, they frequently exclude women. Yeah. Exactly. Everywhere we look, <laughs> you know, even if at the surface, it does look like it's very diverse when we start looking at who has the decision-making power. Uh, like you said, you know, investment committees, people are making decisions about capital, about other, lots yeah. of other things. There aren't enough women out there. How yeah. do we change that? We absolutely need more women to be in investing, right? And as we see in corporate, right, where a lot of the times in corporations, to your point, Priya, it looks like there's diversity. But when you look a little more carefully, you see that the women are only in HR and only in marketing. <laughs> right? Um, they're not the CEO, they're not the COO, they're not the CFO, right? Um, and I think that this is true on the investing side. You know, you'll sometimes even look at, say, an investment firm, and it'll look like they have some women, but when you look a little more carefully, you see that those women are in investor relations, or they're in marketing, they're not in the investment committee that's actually making the decision. And so I think first, there's that, right? Don't accept 
any kind of role at the table. Make sure that the roles that you're aspiring to get and that you're working to get are the roles that are actual decision-making roles, right? Because that's where you have the ability to control where capital is moved, right? Um, and the other thing is just to know that you don't have to have a background in finance to be an investor, right? For example, in my case, I partner with people who have, like one of my business partners has a PhD um, and in finance uh, from Yale um, and she worked in the banking industry. She was an investment banker. Like there is no reason why you can't partner with people who have expertise where you don't, but as an operator and especially as an experienced entrepreneur, you have the skills that are absolutely important in being an investor. The way that I see it is that uh, the best investment decisions are made in the beginning with people who do have strong financial experiences, right? Just in terms of checking the boxes and understanding some of the structural things that a finance person has to understand. But especially after the initial investment decision is made, then who is the star? Like, then what skills do you really need? Like the investment's been made, the check has been written, now what? Now you have to roll up your sleeves and help the entrepreneur succeed. Bankers don't know anything about helping entrepreneurs succeed. Entrepreneurs know how to help entrepreneurs succeed. And so we need entrepreneurial women, women who have had experience, who have started companies, when they get to the point in their life where they are in a position to be able to start investing, or they're just, um, maybe it's not even their own capital, but they have a good enough reputation in the industry that people trust them. That is the time to start saying, great, let me start raising money, meaning you're leveraging other people's money, and let me start advising other people on where to invest, right? Sometimes it doesn't even have to be having your own fund or having your own investment company. You could be a venture partner. You could be an advisor to a bank. You, there are different roles that you can take, all with the goal of making sure that your decisions and your influence is involved, because this is the problem. I think that we talk a lot about how we need to invest in more women entrepreneurs, but when we get to the root of the problem, we need more women investors to be the ones that are making the decisions. Like I'm tired of explaining to men why it's important to invest in women. Just leave the room and give me a room with yeah. women investors where I don't even have to have that conversation. I don't have to spend and waste my energy explaining to women entrepreneurs or women investors why this is important, right? And so I think that there is something to be said for converting the people that are resistant. But if you ask me, I would rather simply start fresh with the right people in the room. It's a lot easier to start with the right people in the room than to convince a bunch of people who are skeptical to do something they don't want to do. You know, I, I really resonate with that. A lot of the times I'm asked, like, what is the business case in investing in women, right? Like when we have to, it's like, you know, having the same conversation, you know, about the obvious things of why and why we should back and how women entrepreneurs really are going to be so critical in this economic recovery period post-pandemic as well. I hope that is a great call to action for more women to get into investing. You know, I myself don't come from that background, but, you know, I've made a conscious decision that that's what I'm going to focus on for the next decade or how long it takes to change the status quo. I want to go back to a little bit of what you said earlier about survival and um, just mm -hmm. kind of a lot of women entrepreneurs I think going, having just experienced the last 12 months going through mm. the pandemic, a lot of the businesses that were affected in the, or the industries where women entrepreneurs are quite active, 
So many of them are now, you know, over the last six to 12 months, really been back in that survival mode. So as kind of some parting words to, to the, all the women entrepreneurs who are listening in today, what would you say to women entrepreneurs who are just on that ro- road to recovery, on that road to building back? I would say this. Um, I guess I would say two things. I don't love the idea of recovery because recovery implies a return to an existing place, right? And where we were before the pandemic was not acceptable, right? Women entrepreneurs were not getting enough funding. Women in corporate environments were not being elevated. We are not in enough positions of leadership. As we were discussing, we are not in positions of decision-making when it comes to investments. So I don't want to go back to that. So the first thing that I would say is let's reframe building back something better, right? And that is at a macro level when we're talking about society, but it's also at a micro level, right? This is potentially an opportunity to build back better, even if it's a teeny tiny company, right? And to reimagine what it could look like. And then the second thing that I would say, and I would I would argue that um, for the women who are younger, this is going to feel like me saying, keep up the good work. For the women that are older, this is going to be look at the younger generations, because one thing that I have found, and I've done it myself, is that when you're an entrepreneur, it's very easy to isolate yourself. It's very easy to feel like you're the only one struggling through the things that you're struggling with. And it's very easy to just be in your little bubble. And what I have found, and I have been really inspired by the next generation of women entrepreneurs, is that they understand that coalitions matter. They understand that one person can complain and make noise and nobody will listen. But if thousands of us come together and we make noise, things happen, right? Governments fall. I mean, massive, massive change happens because women are coming together as a chorus and understanding that alliances matter and that there's a power in numbers. And I would say that the younger generations understand that better than some of the older generations, but all of us, I think, need to see that that's one of the most powerful things that we can do. And as entrepreneurs, it is equally important, right? One person going to a bank saying, how come only 2% of your small business loans go to women-owned businesses is easy to ignore. Thousands of them, thousands of them going to the newspaper, thousands of them going to government entities and saying, are banks allowed to discriminate against women entrepreneurs? Because the banks over here are doing that. That shouldn't be legal. And in most countries, it isn't, but it's not being enforced, right? In the United States, we have laws that say that you're not allowed to discriminate against women and against people of different racial, uh, um, ethnic uh, ethnicities, but those laws are not enforced. And so I would say, that's my parting word is remember that there's a power in working with all of the sisters that you have around you. Thank you. That's uh, beautiful. And that's really kind of the message for our event today is really coming together as a community to mm-hmm. support each other's, so, you know, women supporting women, but also bringing in other partners, men, everybody who can join in and really to have that collective power. Thank you so much, Natalie. We really appreciate you taking the time out to talk Thank to you. all of us women entrepreneurs here in the Philippines. We really appreciate it. I so appreciate the invitation and I'm so proud of everything that everybody is doing. I hope that you continue and that you're inspired. Thank you. Wow, I hope those powerful words from Natalie has inspired you. 
It has certainly inspired me to action. The latest numbers from the World Economic Forum say that it will take us 163 years to achieve gender equality. Are we really going to wait that long? That is just not good enough. As Natalie said, when we raise our voices together, there's nothing that can stop us. To every woman entrepreneur listening, to every woman listening in, let's be there for each other. There is so much power in our collective voice. Find your tribe, find your sisterhood, and let's rise up together. See you next time.